Hello. You sound pretty good for 8 o'clock on a Friday morning. I mean, Monday morning. <clears throat> that, that's my... Uh, I don't, oh, I don't even know what day of the week it is, and I'm going to do some throat clearing, but... <laughs> me, me too, and then you caught me in the... Damn it. That was my uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson uh, good morning. That's, what I, that's how I greet Danny every morning. Hello. And then she goes, the kids are screaming. No, <laughs> not true, not true. So no, because um, she doesn't need to say that because the kids are actually screaming. Right, I'll be able to. Uh, so, so um, just so our listeners know, we're not going to uh, get too much into uh, Skype early on as we do in every. No, we are. We are. Hang on. Um, I've already texted <laughs> my Skype, Skype problems. Just as an FYI, um, I'm currently running Skype 6.0 as opposed to the newest version of Skype 6.3, and I found uh, on the internet that. Uh, um, that many people are running the same problem. Uh, yeah, that's that's weird because I'm I'm running six point three point zero point five eight two as you do. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> so what's the problem people are having with the with this I, version? I think it's a call recorder uh, issue. So I've in a recent <clears throat> version that I've up you know whenever I self updated my uh, Skype, uh, there's some problem between call recorder and. And Skype, so um, so don't don't update if it's working. And uh, I uh, I did not heed that advice, and I usually don't. So now I'm I'm running six point zero point zero point two nine four six. Of course, the the two nine four six that was a good one. Not the two nine four five. No, no, that one's crap. Holy, was that ever bad? But yeah, I've got the uh, two four two nine four six build. That's that's weird though, because you you had texted me some time ago. <clears throat> Warning me about this uh, Skype call recorder problem interaction thing, and 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 then I I did a little bit of googling and I saw the same thing, and I said, well, you know what, I got a little bit of time before the next the next episode. Let me let me see if I can make it all work. And it was it was it wasn't it wasn't so much that it wouldn't work. It was that there was a dependency, right? Like you had to you had up upgrade one of them before you did the other one or something, right? Right, yeah, the the order mattered and and I guess I corrupted it by upgrading or updating the Skype before the call recorder. Anyway, it took me a while to figure this out. Last night I, I ran into problems last week when I was trying to Skype um with someone for like real work reasons, not not not, not, not what we do. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. This is not real work. No, this is real work. I don't know what you what I'm talking about. Um <laughs> And, uh, and then, so I, I thought, oh, well, I'll just, uh, you know, I'll, I'll take a look at it again on Sunday before Don and I get online. And then, uh, it didn't work at all. It just kept dying on me. So, so I had, I had, I had backup because what, what's awesome is it seems to be running fine on my MacBook Air it is my MacBook Pro that has the problem. Both of them have the exact same, um, uh, uh, operating system versions and with the same update. So. I don't know. Anyway, it's uh, Skype. Skype is it's working. We're we've got it. I'm recording. Uh, I'm in my uh, I'm in my office on campus this early, which is which is crazy. Um, and uh, and it's all and it's all a go. It's all it's all happening. Wow. Well, um, I am uh, I'm in my bathrobe. <laughs> awesome. Did you I'm ever, a, I, we're also in your bathrobe. Yeah, I'm also in my bathrobe. <laughs> Did you? Which reminds me, have you seen the movie Wonder Boys? 
I have seen the movie Wonder Boy. <laughs> Michael Douglas is a, I guess he's an English professor, and basically he spends the whole this the whole movie in his bathrobe. I believe I got I got to watch that again. What a great movie! Um, our 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 good friend Doug, um, <laughs> maybe the biggest Wonder Boys fan I've ever met. Really? Yeah, loves that movie, and um, he, you know he his his workflow is. Uh, he watches a lot of TV in the background, um, or, and it's usually some sort of cable um, movie. And so, when Wonder Boys was circulating, you know, maybe six or seven years ago on um, the Canadian version of HBO, which was uh, at that time called the Movie Network, just like the beer store and the liquor store. We're very creative with our um, names. <laughs> and, and, I, I figured it was just like CHBO, you know, the Canadian HBO. Yeah, no, no, it's. <laughs> The Movie Network, TMN. Um, it, it was on. I mean, in in a cycle where I think he was watching it two or three times a day. And uh, Doug, I think very much, um, r- he really liked that movie to to the point where I think at points he would um, point out how he thought we were reenacting certain scenes of. It. <laughs> <laughs> and for those of you who haven't seen this movie, it's a really good movie. Um, where, he, yeah, this guy, uh, Michael Douglas is an English professor. I think Katie Holmes is his sort of star pupil who writes something that's fantastic and it's his love interest. And then Tobey Maguire's in it. And, and he's also this kind of embattled student. And, and Doug could, at, at times, as he would dis- be discussing this, would, would sort of point out, oh, well, so and so is Katie Holmes. And, and so and so is, is Tobey Maguire. And I'm Michael Douglas, obviously. Of course. <clears throat> so. <laughs> Yeah, so I, I'm I'm uh, well well aware of that uh, of that movie. Um, well, hey, so oh, oh, so yeah, so one more one more little bit of a follow up that's not in the notes. So we were talking in the last episode or the the last episode that posted um, about the idea of doing a live show, and uh, of course our. Our good friend and uh, super fan Michael Bat said uh, on Twitter, he said, "Hey dorks, it's easy to do a live show." And then he says it's a change of workflow, and then he gives us a link to Google Hangouts. And while while you were chatting there, um, and as I, I think I texted, I was I, I did a little bit of research on this over the weekend, and it looked surprisingly easy, despite the inscrutable interface that sometimes Google presents you with with its applications. Um, and I actually got it up and running with just myself uh, this weekend, just to to kind of see if it works. And it's like on a like a five or six second delay, but it did seem to send the audio out and, and do a pretty good job. I started it up um, just as we started the call, and then all of a sudden my call quality started to degrade. So I suspect that we could we could do the whole show via Google Hangouts, but what that would mean is that we couldn't do it via Skype. And so what I was trying to do was to do both. Ah, I see. With the idea that we would we would use Google Hangouts to kind of send the stream uh, out into the world while we were recording, so it wouldn't really be um, it would be sort of you know us doing it on Skype and then also sort of sending it out. But but th- then, like I said, I started to, to hear the call quality degrade. I didn't even look to see what it was. But then I, I ended the Google Hangout and um, uh, and then uh, the the call quality came back. So. Ah. Weird. Well, so well, and you know, and that's to be expected. I mean, you, you know, these these all these things take a lot of bandwidth, and there's only so much bandwidth to go around. So, so much bandwidth to go around. That's a good um, show title. Show title. Uh, <laughs> note, no, note. Um, 
Yeah, I, I, I still. So last, uh, a little bit of follow up for me. Last week, uh, I spent uh, um, a, a good time with our friend Michelle Daniluk in Florida, and uh, she and I talked a little bit about this idea of of maybe us running a live show at IAFP or at least having a bunch of interviews. And she said, "You know, you and Don can't do that." And I said, "Why? Like, is there some sort of IAFP policy? Because Don can change that." <laughs> Um, if that's what's needed. She goes, no, no, you've already demonstrated to me that you can't look at each other and talk in person. So you're going to have to do this just from your hotel room or in two separate rooms. So you might as well not even do it. Well, you know, I think we could do it with just like a screen, you know, it's not that hard. We could just sit with a screen between us, you know, and each of us could stare out into the audience. We could, we could set it up so that maybe we could each see the guest or, or we could set it up like, you know, like the, the hear no evil, see no evil, speak no evil, the three, the three monkeys. Right. Um, And just have a screen between all of us. And then, and we just would would not look at each other, like a like an eighties dating show, uh, exactly like an eighties dating show, dating show idea, like like the dating show in Mall Rats. If <laughs> if we really want to focus on on where it should be, <laughs> excellent, yes, fantastic. Um, so okay, well we should we, we I think we should continue on uh, taking a look at this. I think it's a it's a good um, it's a good situation. Um, Hey, so I have a couple other um, follow-ups uh, for us, and I'm not sure they actually made it into um, the notes file that I uploaded because I seem to have uh, paused my um, uh, dot box. So anyway, let me tell you about follow-up um, from uh, show 37 uh, where I talked, uh, I guess, incessantly about my child vomiting on a plane and Delta's um, management of that. I, I, I think that was 36. 36. Because 37 hasn't posted yet, and we're recording 38 right now, right? Correct. Okay. Whenever it was. uh, (laughs) If we just say the the last episode. Sure. The last episode. Yes. That will make the the listeners will know then. Yeah. Um, So uh, in the last episode, I talked about Jack uh, vomiting on a plane. Um, The – that – and I can't remember if I – if I speculated in the podcast about what I thought the – um, the etiology of the agent was um, my my postulation since there was a time after uh, the vomit incident to when anybody else got sick um, of who, who is uh, of an adult age was that it was maybe astrovirus that was before Danny and I both got sick um, so I don't know what the what, what the uh, what the pathogen was and and of course no one got sick enough for us to go to the doctor and um, do all the the good health medical things but. Um, Danny uh, received the gift of uh, five or six days of really watery diarrhea. <laughs> I That's what we brought back from for her. Um, I then spent um, uh, most of uh, Wednesday and Thursday. So this is a- at least uh, 11 days after my son absolutely vomited into my mouth. Um, I, uh, also had some really, uh, watery diarrhea and a couple of vomit events. So I don't know what it was, but it was pretty nasty. It's so nasty that Michelle Daniluk and I went out for dinner, um, to a, a really great restaurant. Um, and I'll give it a plug. It was called fire. And I think it's one of Michelle's, uh, it is one of Michelle's friends, uh, that they own a, a couple, um, that she knows owns the restaurant, um, had a really great meal. I couldn't finish it, um, because my, uh, insides were turning, were turning outside. There's some. There's some poetry. Oh, uh, where and that, that, that is that's awesome. So where and that's in Tampa. It was in uh, Auburndale, 
uh, Alberdale. I think it's called Auburndale, which is in between Lakeland and Lake Alfred, um, uh, Florida. So in between where Michelle uh, resides and, and where she works. Got and it. so, yeah, it was it was great, really great meal, really cool place, like a retrofitted old downtown and this really cool t- this cool sort of small um, Florida town. Uh, anyway, uh, couldn't, couldn't finish my meal, but, uh, but it was oh, all. I'm sorry. Well, I think, I think we ought to consider it astrovirus if for no other reason than it happened on a plane. <laughs> oh, so true. So true. It's astrovirus. Uh, except I I should have some immunity, but who knows? Who knows? Maybe I've never seen, uh, maybe it's a a, a different, uh, uh, genealogical lineage. Well, and, and maybe astrovirus is like norovirus. I mean, I don't know anything about it at all. We should get uh, that guy, uh, Manuel back on the, on the show to talk about it because he's apparently a virology expert. But, uh, um, the uh, the idea that you know it may mutate like noro mutates rapidly enough that you could you could have been exposed to it and have some immunity but not uh, this particular strain the North Carolina strain that's in t- well, the Calgary strain oh the Calgary oh, that's right because he got it in Calgary right Canadians yes but you're you're absolutely right it could be um, so anyway it was uh, that was the uh, sort of extent of my um, of my week but I things cleared up and actually had another really nice meal Jeff Lejeune. Um, our colleague from uh, the Ohio State University, as he pointed out, multiple. Um, it's got it's a capital T on the, but he's an administrator, so he needs to point those types of things out. Jeff uh, <laughs> uh, had uh, we had a great dinner with Jeff at a restaurant um, in uh, Ebor Town, Tampa, uh, a Spanish restaurant called Colombian. So I was feeling much better by the time that happened. So. Um, so anyway, well, well, good. I'm glad. I'm glad you're doing better. That is, that's no fun being sick. It was. Um, my other piece of follow up, which I don't think made the the link the um, our link file either, is um, just a, a piece. I, as I was going back through the the audio file and listening to uh, our discussion in the last episode about the videos that IFT put out about. Um, you know, this is this is our industry. How great is it? And, and our sort of comments about being an industry apologist and and all that kind of stuff made me. Um, I, I was reminded again of that discussion as I read uh, a couple articles last week on ag gag uh, legislation. And I don't know if you've seen um, much of this. It was in the no, I haven't seen anything. Tell me about it. So ag gag um, policy is about. Um, uh, it, it seems to be popping up in, in five or six states, and it's and it's basically a law that says it's illegal for someone to, uh, for an animal activist to pose as a, a as a worker in a um, in an agriculture setting without disclosing that they're an animal activist. And and what what the law is trying to do is make it illegal for someone to go in uh, with a hidden camera, an undercover camera, to demonstrate. Um, animal agriculture, the goods and, and the bads, but often what gets portrayed as the bad. And so there's there's multiple pieces of legislation in different states that that says you can't do this, um, and it's protecting the um, the farmers. And I, I guess the 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 thing that that strikes me in my mind is we want to be able and, and in the 15 years or 10 years that I've worked in in food and agriculture as an area of study um, you kind of always I, I kind of always hear this they just don't understand us that you know um, uh, farmers feed families and people don't you know really get where food comes from 
and then, which is, which is great, which I'm all for. And I think that that's what IFT was trying to do with those videos. But then you get these legislation, pieces of legislation that says, you know what? They don't get what we're all about, but you know what? We're not going to show them anything that we think is bad or, or we're going to lobby our, our state government to, to shut down um, these types of exposés because they put us in a bad light. And I, I it, it, it saddens me a little bit because there are things that people might think are ugly that are best practices. Um, there's an article I read yesterday that, that sort of said, you know, that if someone was to walk into an operating room and see someone with open heart surgery and see someone sort of cut open, you, you might think that that's fairly graphic. Um, but that's how that doesn't mean we're going to ban open heart surgery. Right. Yeah. 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 No. And this is, yeah, I, I you know, I, I did I had not, not heard of this until about five minutes ago and I did some quick Googling and it looks like I'll, I'll link to uh, an article in the Atlantic, which, you know, generally has pretty good, pretty good writing. But, but yeah, this whole idea of, well, okay, so we're, we don't like people coming in and secretly videotaping what we're doing. So we're going to create legislation that's going to stop that instead of saying, well, gosh, you know what? We're going to put up video cameras everywhere and we're going to show you exactly what we're doing. And then we're going to explain to you why those are best practices. And, and hey, if they're not best practices, we're going to fix them. Right. And it, isn't it kind of cyclical like to not do that, to say, you don't understand what we're doing, so we're not going to show you. Yeah, because that's the solution, right? It's too complicated or it's too hard for you to understand or your, you know, your ideal concept of what a farm is like uh, or, or you know, the fact that you don't want to – you think food comes from the grocery store and you don't know, really want to know where it comes from. The solution to that is to not make that even harder to find out, right? <laughs> I would think so. But it, it, it seems to be – to me, it seems a little backwards and, it, and it's almost like I want to say you can't argue that people don't know what you do. Anymore, if you don't want to show them, in fact, if you want to make it illegal for them to to walk in there with with video cameras, and I understand the you know the the problems with an expose, um, but heck, sometimes exposes end up changing things for the better, um, and and it gives them an opportunity to explain why they do what they do. So anyway, let's not let's not me get cyclical about this conversation. I just wanted to point out that that our conversation you know, came back in mind because I was like, I think this is exactly what. I, you know, what IFT is trying to do, um, but they don't. You know, um, the, these ag gag laws are uh, are problematic for some of those in the in the food industry. I'm not. I'm I'm all for the um, for exposés and <laughs> all for the banned expose. Um, and 90s, early 90s, late 80s uh, band. I think it was uh, like in the fashion of Heart, uh, three females, uh, singer, guitar, drummer. Um, and I will Google and find out what their songs were. But uh, I do remember really liking Expose. Oh, very good. <laughs> on, on that note, um, so... Uh, We've got we got a bunch of stuff, and you were a little worried. We were texting last night. You were a little worried that we wouldn't have a lot to talk about, but I think I talk about, and you will you will inevitably have a lot to talk. About. Right, and for those for those that are not familiar, we should explain our process. So our process is basically during the whole time period from one show to the next. I every day carefully, methodically pick out one or two topics that cross my desk, you know, in terms of uh, usually it's something from Bytes or something from Barf Blog, but it might be from other sources as well. Um, and then, and your process the night before you, you, you find as much as you can and you show it, throw, throw it into show notes. And, and those two processes actually are very, are very complementary and actually end up at the same place because in, invariably what I end up doing is the stuff that I carefully methodically collect through the two week time period. Most of it ends up being pretty 
boring and not very interesting. So you're too harsh, you're too harsh on yourself. <laughs> Oh, um, oh, but before before we do that, though, I and I had put this into our our uh, our draft uh, our draft working file, and then somehow didn't it didn't get uploaded or it got it got stomped on or something. But I would like to start um, a weekly segment or a, a segment every episode, um, and and that segment is called Bug Trivia. Let's do it. Okay, and 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 this is from our uh, corris- our our field correspondent, Carl <laughs> Custer. Do we before we get into do we need like a, a we do this like sort of betting audio? Boop, 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 boop. Yeah, we need we need we Carl needs theme music. All right, okay, let's try. So 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 and I don't know I don't not and I think and so this was a, a message that was I think it was BCC'd out to a whole lot of people and I don't know if I think I forwarded it on to you I don't know if you I don't I don't have the email and I have the contents of the email but I don't have the email I- itself but this is this is just the kind of stuff that Carl um, gets to work on now that he's retired and so it, it's a long email message um, it's some stuff that he was putting together I guess for a book chapter um, but it's called uh, the, the the heading of the of the email messages, bug trivia, and then it goes through kind of organism by organism. So I thought we would start just because because we got to stretch it out and make it make it go over several episodes. So I thought we would start with salmonella. Good. Okay. So I will I will read to you excerpts from uh, Carl's uh, wonderful uh, collection of of bug trivia. And of course, we're talking we're not talking about bugs, the the things that uh, uh, are, are insects that crawl around, um, and maybe bugs aren't insects. And if you're an entomologist, <laughs> please please email Ben uh, with that correction. But uh, so so Salmonella. So Salmonella is actually named after a guy. It's not named after the fish, okay? But it's named after a guy uh, named Daniel Salmon. Um, but uh, so it's named after Daniel Salmon, but it was isolated and characterized by Theobald Smith, um, who in 1886 worked at the USDA's Bureau of Animal Industry. And I have to say that the Theobald Smith Society is the name of the local ASM chapter um, here in New Jersey and at Rutgers University. So there's a little bit of a, a Rutgers connection there. So uh, Salmon, a veterinarian, was the lab's chief, so only his name appeared on the paper describing the new bacterium. Uh, it's, and it says here, Smith thought, uh, Theobald Smith thought the bacterium was the cause of hog cholera, which in fact was later determined to be caused by a virus. So I find that this is fascinating. So the organism is named, but not for the guy that discovered it. And it was attributed to something that a disease that in fact it didn't ever cause. <laughs> uh, so okay. um, anyway, so, and I think, and again, Carl goes on to give some more kind of relevant information. Um, but, but I think, uh, I think we'll, uh, we'll end it there with, uh, with our, our weekly edition of, of bug trivia. Cue the uh, outro uh, theme music for Carl Custer. No, excellent. I love it. I think it's something from No Whammy, whatever that uh, game show was from the uh, from the eighties. Um, I'll find. I'll find out. I thought, I thought it was like a like was a morning edition kind of thing you were doing there. Dateline. Carl Cup desk. Um, okay, this is what happens when we've got an eight eight a.m. Uh, breakfast uh, uh, show today. With hey, I'm I'm good. I'm on my second cup of coffee. My brain's working. Good stuff. I'll, I'm just silly. I'm just I'll be a little silly. Um, so hey, I want to talk to you about Cryptosporidia. Okay. Um, 
this is this caught my eye yesterday as I was doing my show preparation, uh, as you as you noted. Uh, go back through the last couple of days worth of stuff that comes across and, and read what's going on out there. And, and um, what what I wanted to, and it, I think what we 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 sometimes do on our show, if we could go back and look at um, uh, summary, and I'll get we'll get to Michelle Danilux's summary of our show in a minute. Um, but if we go back and look at uh, you know what we talk about, I think we do a lot of critiquing of messages, critiquing of management situations, and this is in a long line of of that uh, uh, um, ilk, I guess. So there's a whole bunch of crypto going on apparently in uh, across uh, Australia, and uh, I took this. Uh, this story comes from the Bendigo. Uh, advertiser, uh, which is uh, located, Bendigo's located somewhere in, in Australia, uh, I assume. Um, and Andreas will definitely chime in on this one uh, in the notes. Anyway, uh, in the, the article uh, in the advertiser from a few days ago, Department of Health has confirmed an increase in the number of cases of gastro caused by the cryptosporidium parasite, which is found in the feces of humans, cattle, and other animals. There have now been, this is kind of a staggering um, increase, 458 cases of crypto notified to the department this year, and this was compared to 88 for the same period last year. So, um, you know, these are confirmed cases quite a bit uh, above the expected baseline, it sounds like. Now, this is where, where things go a little wishy-washy for me. Um, Bendigo Health Infection Control Manager James Helstein says that the best way to prevent the high, highly contagious gastro was through good personal hygiene. Hand hygiene, hand hygiene, hand hygiene. I can't emphasize that enough, she said. It's all about cleaning and washing your hands often and even carrying alcohol rubs when you're out and about. They're good to use prior to eating and when you're stuck out and about with nowhere to wash your hands. Um, then uh, there's a quote in the article that says, Victoria's Chief Health Officer, Dr. Rosemary Lester, said there was a link between the increase in notifications and the recent spate of hot weather, which saw a large number of people seek relief at their local swimming pools. Um, the quote from Dr. Lester is, the condition is caused by swallowing the parasite, which symptoms include watery diarrhea, stomach cramps, and vomiting. So my question to you here is, is it hand hygiene or pools? Um, and my guess is that it's pools because we see this, you know, anytime we see these large outbreaks there's a, or large increases, there was a, a bunch of outbreaks associated with pools in Utah um, back, uh, I think it was 2000, summer 2010, summer 2011. We'll link to that uh, in the show notes. Um, but the, this person-to-person infection not through pools seems pretty unlikely. That's my, my first kind of critique here. The second one is, come on, alcohol-based hand wipes, they're not going to do anything or very, very, very little um, against uh, to, to reduce the likelihood of spreading uh, crypto because um, alcohol-based hand wipes don't uh, they, they don't affect the, the the crypto parasite. So it's to me, it's like this this case of um, uh, trying to capitalize on an outbreak or illnesses to get a message across that's really not in context for anybody. And in fact, wouldn't do anything. Like if you were looking to, you know, to protect yourself from crypto, I, I wouldn't say wash your hands. Or um, if you're looking to not spread it around, I wouldn't wash your hands. It's, it's don't go visit a pool um, because the, likely that's the, that's the source. Yeah. And, you know, as you were <clears> – <throat> As you were reading that that from that article um, or quoting from that article, and you said you made that statement, my immediate response was, "Well, 
that's I think that's probably wrong, right? And then and then you had linked to, in fact, to the CDC document in our in our notes, and, and we'll we'll link to that in our show notes as well. And in fact, yes, uh, alcohol doesn't work against crypto. In fact, chlorine doesn't work against crypto oocysts, and that's the reason why when you have a water filtration system for a municipality, that there's a filtration step, right? There's a sand filtration step to physically remove these oocysts because chlorine is known to not be terribly effective. In fact, there was a very well-publicized outbreak in Milwaukee quite a few years ago now, back in the, back in the 90s. I think that's when you, back when you were in kindergarten, right? Back in the 90s. Um, the, um, that, that they had a, 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 a huge amount of rain in Milwaukee. It overwhelmed the sewage treatment plants to the point where the, the, the filtration system wasn't working. And yes, they chlorinate everything that goes out. But again, with something like you know, an oocyst of a parasite like cryptosporidium is not vulnerable to chlorine, let's say the same way a salmonella cell is or an E. coli cell is. And so, yeah, it, chlorine doesn't work. Alcohol doesn't work. And so, and, you know, I think we see this, I've seen this a number of times over my career where a particular public health person or it, maybe it's a food safety person, but they have like a message, you know, and their message is hand washing or their message is irradiation or, or whatever their message is. And then whenever they see an opportunity to present their message, they do it. But they sometimes forget that 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 might not be what the science supports. So, in fact, <clears throat> yeah, it's great that people have good hand hygiene. That's wonderful. But, but the this uh, the the health infection control manager is 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 just wrong here, and she's doing people a disservice by giving them this. Not only not, I mean, you know, sometimes in a in a situation, and as a risk communicator, I think you'll back me up on this. It's good to give people advice about something to do. Like, okay, gosh, I'm worried about cryptosporidium. What should I do? Well, you can tell them to wash their hands. You can tell them to use alcohol sanitizer, hand sanitizers. But really, the thing that you want to tell them to do is be judicious about where you go to use a pool. <laughs> you know. Absolutely. And, and don't, you know, I, I think your comment on, um, uh, on the, the infection control officer or doing a disservice, I think, I think you're right. I think that message, what it does is diverts people away from something that they could do to, to control it, not control, but to manage their risk. Right. So yeah, it's, uh, it, it's, I think it's, it's all too often that we, that we see this because I, I agree with you hundred percent. I think someone's got, in their mind, look, I gotta give it, get a message out there. This is a uh, something that's a foodborne pathogen. Wash your hands is the most important thing because there's some you know magical statistic out there that all you know fifty percent of foodborne illnesses or infections or whatever could be reduced if if there was just proper hand washing. And it's and it's not nearly that simple. And this is a great example of where that's not even the case. Um, so yeah, it's uh, um, it, it, I think these these types of things uh, pop up. Um, over and over again. No, but let's so let's but let's let's make it a little bit more complicated. So let's say you know that it is likely pools, <clears throat> but you don't know which pools. You could, I suppose, get into a lot of hot, hot water, um, pun intended, um, about by by saying, "Well, don't go to the pools." And in fact, people stop going to pools. And if there's pools that that I don't know charge people to get in, you're impacting their business. Or you could say, well, don't go to water parks, right? Um, 
and, and that could have a negative economic consequence. So again, we're back to that question about what do you tell people and, and how soon do you tell them? You tell them, well, it looks like there's a link to to, to uh, a pool or it's the link to a water park um, or multiple water parks. And, and so, I mean, again, it gets, I mean, we can sit here on the microphones in the podcast and, and pretend to know everything, but, but I think that in a situation like that, it might be a little harder, but, but even, even given that, I still think it's wrong to tell people to use alcohol hand wipes. Right. Yeah. Cause that's not going to help them anywhere. <laughs> right. And, and, but, but on the other hand, um, if, if you own stock in an alcohol hand wipe company, that's probably going to be good, right? It's not, no one's going to, no one's going to feel bad about people buying more alcohol hand wipes, <laughs> but, uh, but if your goal was to control, well, that, good point. Good point. What's your, what's your goal? And as a, a public health person, I would hope that their goal would be reduction of illness. And, but I mean, let's, you know, on the other side, the, those alcohol wipes are going to do something for public health, you know? And so maybe, maybe there is a net public health, um, uh, uh, increase or effect here. That's like, well, although we'll, we'll take this, this time to focus, even though it's, it's a crypto outbreak, we'll take this time to show people how important illnesses are and we'll capitalize on that. And maybe using those alcohol wipes is going to reduce, um, some other um, bacterial pathogen uh, or, or some bacterial pathogen. Well, you know, th- that's that actually makes me think of something that's a, actually a nice lead-in to the next thing on the list, which is this hepatitis A scare in a uh, high-end West Village bistro. And that is there was an article published <clears throat> a number of years ago in Journal of Food Protection, and I'll, I'll see if I can, I can dig it up. But basically it was a, a – I wouldn't call it a risk assessment, but <clears> – <throat> It was essentially like a risk assessment where they they looked at the, uh, the they modeled the effect of what mandating hepatitis A vaccination would mean for uh, hepatitis A uh, outbreak control in restaurants. And the bottom line is is that there would be an if you mandated that everybody that worked in a restaurant got hepatitis A vaccine, there would be a net improvement in public health but only in the people that worked in restaurants. There would be no net increase in public health in patrons of restaurants. <laughs> so, you know, which I thought was kind of a very interesting story. So, yes, yeah, so we should we should mandate that everybody that works in a restaurant get hepatitis A vaccine because it will it will have a net benefit on their life, but but it's not going to have any effect again if you believe the results of the calculation and calculations in the paper that it would really have any effect whatsoever on the patrons of restaurants. So uh, anyway, that's I just it made me think of that. I think that's kind of an interest. It was an interesting conclusion from that article. Well, and that made me think of something else that uh, back in uh, 2000, 2001, whenever the foot, big, uh, I think it was a one big uh, foot and mouth uh, disease uh, outbreak uh, happened in uh, in Europe. Um, I remember reading an article, it was probably in the Globe Mail or Toronto Star or National Post or something from uh, someone who worked for um, uh, customs immigration uh, folks at, at Toronto Pearson um, Airport, and the the article talked about um, this idea that people coming off planes uh, from Europe uh, had to walk on you know thirty feet of a, a of a viricide um, foot bath, you know, some foaming thing or squishing thing that that you know even if people hadn't visited farms, they were at increased risk of bringing foot and mouth disease back to Canada, and um, I can't remember who the quote was from, and I'll have to see if I can dig this up. But basically, the person who was interviewed said, look, we know that it does not 
them walking across that that Vercon strip or or whatever the the agent was isn't going to reduce um, the risk at all. But what it does do is it makes people declare the illegal foods that they're bringing back, things like cheeses and meats that may actually be carried. Huh. Be- because the, because people think, hey, um, they're making me walk through this thing. This must be kind of important, so I better not fib? Absolutely. Oh, brilliant. It was this, you know, the, this sideways way of getting around it. And I was like, oh, that was, that was really cool. I'll see if I can dig that up. And I don't know, you know how evidence-based that statement was, but I, that stuck with me as, oh, well, that's one way to do behavior changes, tell people something that might re- you know, raise their alert, and then maybe they'll end up doing something else. So maybe this message about the crypto outbreak, really there's not a crypto outbreak at all. They really do this <laughs> more. <laughs> I'm pretty sure there's really a crypto outbreak. There probably is. <laughs> so um, you, you already mentioned um, a little bit about this hepatitis A um, uh, issue in uh, in New York in the West Village. Uh, it's associated with the, a restaurant, uh, Bistro Alta. And um, there was an, an article uh, that, um, that I saw a couple of days ago that I want to read a couple of quotes from here because I thought it was really interesting. And I want to get your take on it. So sure. the situation here is um, – uh, the health authorities are suggesting anyone who ate dessert at this restaurant uh, between March 23rd and April 2nd should get a hepatitis A vaccination just in case because uh, there was a food handler that had um, uh, been diagnosed with hepatitis A. The restaurant's manager, Manny Solano, said that a pastry chef had contracted the virus while traveling in Mexico. He said that she realized she was ill on Monday but now is feeling better. Uh, on Friday, uh, the health department and Alta's owners were frantically reaching out to customers. They estimated to be about 3,000 people. Um, and there are some choice quotes from uh, uh, from folks um, that uh, were interviewed by the, the source here, dnainfo.com. Uh, Thank God we didn't eat there, said uh, his surprise date when they interviewed a guy uh, who found out about the health scare after being told by um, – uh, the reporters, oh, my God, that's why they didn't have the pastries, said Martine Seiden, 23, from morning. We asked for dessert, and they told us the oven was broken. But uh, Christian Steiner, 41, a Midtown lawyer, said that he was ate at Alta during the time period in the health department. Uh, during the health department's warning, seemed unfazed by the potential for infection. Luckily, we didn't want dessert. We wanted to keep drinking, he said. So, so Well, oh. the alcohol does have a protective effect from for some organisms anyway. <laughs> So, so let's let's talk about the the risk here, though. Yeah. So, so I don't, and, and I don't know Alta at all. I've never been. I've really never been to New York. Um, uh, but so I've, we'll have to take you the next time. Uh, the next time you're in town. It, it it's almost too magical for me to go based on everything that I've seen in movies and TV. But I will like to go. I would like to go sometime. Um. A- anyway. Uh, to me, a pastry chef uh, having having hepe is is relatively lower risk. But I don't know how much um, sort of ready-to-eat food that pastry chef actually uh, handles. But but it's not um, it, it, to, it, to me. It's not as you know as as big of a deal as um, if it was a you know a, a sandwich maker or someone. right. Someone else, but I mean, there's still there's still a, a, a sort of a, a risk there. Um, so that you know that did, am I, you know if if you were Alta, my question to you is, you know how are are you, how are you managing this situation? Are you worried 
you know, not so much because it's, it's your pastry chef as opposed to someone else? Or what do you, you know, what are you doing in this situation? Well, if I'm, if I'm a person that owns the restaurant where I know that I have a worker that um, has hep A, I'm freaking out, right? Because if that person is in the restaurant, then I know uh, that there's a risk there. Um, and I don't care whether it's the pastry chef or the sandwich chef or the pot washer. I'm taking action. And, and this is, you know, and, and we can, this kind of is a little bit of a, a segue or, or a derail, but, you know, I like to pay when I go to places, I like to pay with a credit card in part because it helps me track my expenses. And but also in part, because then I'm on record they can contact me if there's a problem. And when I go to this grocery store, yes, I pay with a credit card and I use my frequent shopper card um, to, to swipe in even if there's no discounts because the idea is that if any of those foods ever are recalled, they can contact me. Now, I realize that that also invites potential invasions to my privacy. But on the other hand, I would really very much like to uh, to, to be contacted. So uh, yeah, if I'm, if I'm the restaurant owner, I'm, I'm worried and I'm contacting all of those patrons and I'm doing my very best to let those folks know. Um, yeah, that, that's, that's my, that's my reaction. And then also again, you know, uh, hep A can have a very long incubation period. So yeah, I'm, uh, I'm pretty, I'm pretty worried even if it's the pastry chef. Well, and I'm glad you, I, I am too. And I think that um, I'm worried. I'm, I'm probably not as worried about the patrons getting ill, but I'm worried that, uh, as you said, I, there's a risk that's been introduced to my um, to my business. And if someone did get get ill, then um, then I'm wrecked. I'm, I'm also worried that um, that I'm going to have to, you know, I've got all this sort of negative publicity out there. And even if that pastry chef was hand washer superstar, best, you know best hand washer in the world and is handling a low risk uh, product. I'm still kind of, I'm still kind of screwed on the, this restaurant is linked to hepatitis A, you know, it's a hepatitis A scare or an alarm or a, you know, whatever, whatever it is, there may never be any illnesses, but, uh, but I'm, I'm kind of stuck. And, and this goes back to that, that paper that you talked about, about um, sort of the net public health calculation, um, with with having vaccinated um, employees, what a vaccinated employee does, though, is it helps me avoid this. If I'm a restaurant owner, it may not do a whole lot for public health for my patrons, but I'm not dealing with something like this if my if all my staff have uh, have Hep A um, vaccinations. And there's lots of problems with that on sort of cost and who pays for it. And if someone wants to opt out, what do you do? But um, but but it, it uh, Hep A to me often becomes more of a um, a, a communications uh, nightmare more than the likelihood that someone's going to get sick, and and you can lose um, equally as much money uh, around that. Um, so you also mentioned something about incubation period being really long for um, uh, for Hep A, and that was the other thing that I kind of picked up here. If you look back at that article, um, they're um, urging anyone who ate dessert at the restaurant between March 23rd and April 2nd get a vaccination. Well, we're only today at April 8th, and um, you know we, we know from uh, past Hep A uh, outbreaks and, and how Hep A works um, that you can shed that virus for a long time before showing symptoms. Um, you know, maybe maybe 30 days. So. I'm that that date of March 23rd kind of pops up in my mind a little bit of how you know how how did 
both Alta and, and public health make their determination on the on that date. Is well, it? You know, oh, sorry. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say, let's hope it's the day that the restaurant worker who was in Mexico came back and went to work. Could be because that's yeah. the only that's the only reason it could be. I mean, there's. I mean, that that's that's when the the starting period is when the infected handler starts work. Right. There's no there's no other legitimate way to calculate that number. Right. Or so. Or maybe they started. That was their first day at, on this job. But but what I hope that isn't happening here, Don, is that. This person went to Mexico for a week, and they came back on March 23rd, and they assumed that absolutely they got that Hepe in in Mexico, because it could be that this Hepe happened. And I, I'm totally guessing on this this whole situation, but um, they could have been infected and in, in shedding from for much longer before then. But the the easy sort of look is, oh, well, you have Hepe and you went to Mexico. Well, that must be where it came from. But there's lots of other sources. That's true. That's 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 very true. And it is possible to get Hepe from food while you're in the United States. So yeah, yeah. And the yeah, it says the pastry chef contacted contracted the virus while traveling in Mexico. He said that she realized she was ill on Monday. So we'd have to go back and look at a calendar and figure out what day of the week March 23rd was. But yeah, it's uh, it's it's not it's not straightforward, right? Because people can shed the virus before they show symptoms, they can shed the virus after symptoms have resolved. Um, yeah, it's it's complicated. It's a nasty. Yeah, and and it hurts uh, hurts food food service folks a lot. Mm-hmm. Speaking of food service folks, I want to talk about uh, and pastries. In fact. I want to talk about uh, something that that you uh, noted here uh, around. Uh, it's an abstract from um, food microbiology uh, from uh, some folks in in Greece who looked at or a uh, one person uh, in Greece, and I'm going to butcher this name as I do most of the names, um, but I think it's Parthena Kozikadu and. Uh, uh, Parthena um, published a, a paper looking at a 10-year inspection survey, uh, microbiological study of ready-to-eat foods and ready-to-bake frozen pastries from 15 canteens at a university campus. And um, this was quite the abstract, mainly – and your your comment was awesome. So um, – the, in the abstract, they talked about, uh, or she talked about a whole bunch of um, uh, foods over those ten years being contaminated with pathogens, like. Um, the highest percentage of foodborne pathogens were 20% listeria monocytogenes and 12.5% staph aureus in desserts with dairy cream, um, 17.5% salmonella, and 8.5% of E. coli 157 in sandwiches. I mean, just to me, staggering um, uh, numbers of um, uh, of. Uh, of pathogens, but I want to talk a little more uh, about this paper. Your comment was, "Why are the students not rioting in the diarrhea-filled streets?" My <laughs> back to you was, "Whoa!" So <laughs> that was so funny. I thought that you wrote it. I forgot that I wrote it. <laughs> it was <laughs> unless Doug linked to it, and that was his comment. I don't remember now. It could be, but it is possible that we don't know why they're not. But anyway, this is—I mean, this is quite the quite the paper, right? Yeah, this is, and this is as somebody that. Administers a program that looks at the quality, microbiological safety, and quality of foods that are served in university dining halls. Um, uh, this is this is. 
bad news. I mean, this is really bad. And my, my first reaction, and again, I don't know, uh, I don't know the uh, uh, the author, but my um, uh, Parthena. <laughs> Katsukidu, yeah, sorry, sorry, Parthena, if you're a listener, um, please, uh, if you are a listener, please let us know. We'll send you a refrigerator magnet, which has the temperature, I think, in degrees F, which is probably not helpful if you're in Greece. But, um, but yeah, but this is, this is, these are really bad counts. I mean, and, and in fact, um, yeah, really bad, very scary uh, counts. Um, that's all I can say. I mean, this is, uh, and, you know, and, and, you know, the, the, what I can also say is that finally we've been collecting data. We have we have collected this kind of data for many many years, and back in the early two uh, thousands, um, the aughts as they as the kids call them, um, we published a paper. Rebecca Montville and I published a paper where we presented some of that data that was collected from nineteen ninety to two thousand. And I'm I'm pleased to announce that I have a new graduate student, uh, Leishan, who is analyzing the data that we've collected from two thousand uh, to you know twenty ten or, or or after. And so we'll be publishing some more papers. And one of the things that we did when we when we changed the program in around the year 2000 is we moved from doing a lot of surface sanitation work to doing a lot of temperature work. So I have literally reams and reams of data of hot holding and cold holding temperatures on a variety of foods. We have total plate counts on, you know, we have literally hundreds and hundreds of samples. Um, the good news is in our tests, we, we rarely find salmonella. My gosh, it's nothing like 17%. I mean, we find salmonella probably once or twice a year. Year. Rare, actually, rarely find uh, Listeria monocytogenes. Now, we don't. I should mention we don't test um, any raw foods. So we'll test cooked meats. We won't test raw meats. We'll test salad. We'll basically almost always exclusively focus on ready-to-eat uh, food items. Although occasionally we'll get a sample from a new vendor that our sanitarian wants us to evaluate, and uh, and we'll test some raw food. But for the most part, we we look at ready-to-eat foods. But this, but we don't see anything nearly like this. Now, the one, the one, the situation where we do see higher counts that that often, I, I hate to use the word fail, but don't pass the 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 historical standards of the program are on produce items. And back when the program was developed, back in the the late '60s, early '70s, produce wasn't a known food safety problem. And so um, the standards were, were really designed around ready to eat, you know, meats and, and deli salads and things like that. Um, and one of the things that I hope will come out of Lee's research is, or Lay's research is to, to credit, see whether we can modify those standards, because what we don't want to do is we don't want to be routinely failing produce items because they have high counts, right? Because if that's a normal count on a piece of lettuce or a piece or a tomato or something, then, then we want to, um, you know, we want to respect that and, and, and set a standard that that's reasonable and is based on the historical historical data. But yeah, I mean, but but these these numbers for pathogens really really worry me. And I don't know. Like I said, I think I was starting to say just a few minutes ago. I'm I really wonder whether it there's some sort of mistake in the microbiology. You know, like and I didn't review the article, and I confess I haven't. Uh, I've skimmed the article. I haven't read it in great detail, but these are just almost too horrible to believe. Well, yeah. And, and so I'll point out here um, for for you and for the listeners, the, the, the real meat of this to me is in table five of, of this paper because they um, she breaks down um, uh, the types of foods and the pathogens, you know, sandwiches, desserts, oven-baked, desserts with dairy cream, oven-baked pastries and frozen pastries. So at, 
the the sandwiches are the only ready to um, uh, ready to eat foods. Everything else is a ready to bake, and I don't know what what those these products kind of look like, but I mean, of I, and I don't know how, of these sandwiches. How many of these are can, carrying multiple pathogens? Because it's not really clear in here. But um, and, and the numbers are kind of messy. Like uh, of the sandwiches, the, there are sixty-five that were sampled for listeria, but then there was a hundred that were sampled for Staph aureus. And, and I guess you know this is someone who's t- taken ten years worth of results and try to try to compare them. But but you're looking at like. Um, five out of the 65 sam- sandwiches that were sampled for Listeria had, had Listeria, so 7%. 11 out of 63 um, had Salmonella. Um, four out of 47, 0157, which was presumptive. Um, uh, and uh, and 11, you know, 11% had Staph aureus and, and 6% Bacillus cereus. I mean, just... That's staggering in the ready to eat sandwiches. Like, and and it could be, you know, it doesn't go down, break down into ingredients. I mean, it it, it could be a, um, a meat preparation. It really doesn't even tell us. She doesn't really tell us what types of sandwiches these are. I mean, there's so many different variables here. But regardless, it's huge. Like, I mean, seventeen percent of uh, of these ready to eat foods with salmonella in them makes me makes me not want to eat at, at on these campus uh, at these campus restaurants. Yeah, I mean seventy seventeen percent. This, I mean, why? Literally, why are the students not rioting in the diarrhea filled streets? I mean, this is this is scary stuff. It is. Yeah, it's it's pretty wild. Um, so thanks. Good good job. Uh, sort of pulling that up and, and letting us talk, you know, talk about it. There is, there is a list in table two of the ingredients of all the sandwiches and there's, um, hams and cheeses. I mean, there's multiple different, um, components and you can't really pull it apart, but, um, yeah, it's, it's pretty, it's, it's wild. So, yeah. Uh, so anyway, uh, good, good luck to the students, uh, at the unnamed university campuses in Greece. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's a school, school of agriculture, right? Aristotle University. I know some people that work there, actually. I should ask them how often they have diarrhea. How good, how good is your cafeteria? No, I don't, want, I don't want to tip my hand. I just want to say, how, how often do you think you have a food poisoning there? And, and, and then as a follow-up question, how often do you eat at the university? Oh, man. Yeah, what, kind of a mess. Yeah. Um, so, 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 let me, let, let's, let's talk about uh, a couple other things. Um, uh, here as well. I've got um, uh, one one thing that came out of some folks um, in um, uh, uh, the UK, uh, a group called uh, Campton BRI, uh, which is I think I don't know a whole lot about them, but I think that they're like a an offshoot of uh, Campton University, and it's a, a research sort of. Um, it, research consulting business. Anyway, they, they publish quite a few food safety things. Are you, do you know who I'm talking about? Yeah. Is this the group that, that used to be called uh, Chipping Camden? You know, it could be. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure. I've only sort of come across them. Um, I've, I've seen their stuff before, but I've only really sort of started following their their news alerts and, and some of the research they put out um, within maybe the last two years. And, and the reason why I'm how I got kind of introduced to them was they're the source for um, uh, a paper um, showing spread of pathogens around a kitchen when you wash your chicken or turkey. 
Um, like they, these are the folks that that did that research back in the late or mid nineties, I guess, um, that has sort of caused everyone all around the world to change, um, their messaging around why it's not a good idea to wash your Turkey. Uh, so anyway, as, as I dug through their material and found that stuff, I started following them and, and they had a, um, a, a news release that came out, um, last week. And, and I don't know this, this, so we'll talk about this a little bit, but the, the news release, um, Got a little bit of play in the UK, and it's about food safety training blocked by lack of time. Um, and I um, noted in the uh, our notes file that I couldn't cut and paste this for various copyright reasons, which I wasn't happy with with the uh, with the uh, website. But anyway, um, that's like how 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 could how, what's the best way to make sure that people don't talk about what you're doing? Make it really hard for them to get copy and paste information off your website. I've never had that happen to me before. Like I've never tried to cut and paste something, got to the point where it's highlighted, and then this message comes. Yeah, this content is copyright protected. Screw you guys. Anyway, yeah. we'll talk about this for a second. Um, uh, they they uh, uh, conducted a survey of um, uh, six hundred, almost six hundred and fifty manufacturers and processors, and. Um, in, in employees that work there, more than 70% of those surveyed reported that finding time for food safety training was the greatest challenge. Um, further, 43% that food safety training was obstructed by the difficulties of checking uh, the effectiveness of training programs. And I thought those two pieces are really, really interesting. So these are, these are uh, you know, management, uh, supervisor folks that are required, not required, but um, you know, in some cases may be required, in other cases maybe a policy to provide food safety training depending on, on where they are regulatory-wise. And, and the folks that are trying to do the training say, say, well, we just don't have enough time to do that or, or time becomes a problem uh, because there are uh, other um, t- uh, pressures on, on what we're supposed to, to be doing, you know, making food uh, and, and keeping lines up and running and, uh, and whatever, and probably even sanitation, um, actual implementation gets in the way. Um, but the, the other part that I thought was really, really kind of interesting here was this further 43% saying training was obstructed by the difficulties of checking the effectiveness of the training program. So I read that as, um, Almost half of the the respondents said they, although they may have had time to to do the training, um, they weren't sure whether what they were going to be training people on was all that effective. And so they wanted to uh, then ensure that there was some sort of evidence behind the training program. That one kind of surprised me. I just, I wouldn't have expected that, um, that message to, to come out. What, so while this is kind of a cool little um study it only appears in a in a um uh uh powerpoint um presentation so it's not published or anything like that just some some interesting uh stuff but you know i wanted to ask you about that food safety training that 43 percent that said that training was obstructed by the difficulties of checking the effect of the program that seems odd to me because i i don't often as much as i think we talk about it's really important to check the effectiveness or has this been evaluated? It seems to be that that's a really, um, you know, sort of academic question. The practitioners of doing it, I don't often get that question so much. So <laughs> I thought it was kind of weird. Yeah. And well, so and I really, I wasn't completely listening because I was typing a snarky comment onto their website about my biggest impediment to food safety training is websites that won't let me copy and paste. <laughs> but uh, that's just me being uh, be, being grumpy. But no, I mean, yes, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, one of the things that we 
often harp on or that people who are not me often harp on is you need to, if you're going to do a training program, you need to assess the effectiveness. And for years in extension, it was beat into our heads that we needed to not only do training, we needed to assess the effectiveness of that training. But I don't find that the difficulties in checking the effectiveness stops me from training right? It may stop me from getting grants. It may, it may stop me from getting promoted, but it doesn't stop me from doing the training, right? I can do the training even if I don't do anything to evaluate the effectiveness. So, and I'm, I don't know, I'm a, I'm a big, I'm a big believer in training. I am. And I'm, I mean, this is, this is weird coming from a guy who's like a quantitative numbers, you know, analyze stuff kind of guy, but I'm I'm a little suspicious of any measures of training effectiveness that aren't immediate that aren't that aren't direct measures, you know. So training effectiveness that asks people, well, did you learn something or post tests that measure knowledge. I, I'm really concerned with behavior change and, and measuring behavior change is darn difficult. But so let's say I was doing a food safety training in a restaurant. Well, I'd like to see an improvement in some objective third-party measure like inspection scores, or let's say I did a training on how to clean the juice machine. Well, I'd like to see the effectiveness of that be improved sanitation results, micro results on the juice machine, right? So I, so those, those are the things that I would look at in terms of, well, was the training effective? Did it achieve the thing that I was wanting it to achieve? Not did, do people say they learned something? Not did people be, could people pass a test with higher scores, right? So yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I agree with the headline. Food safety training is blocked by a lack of time, but but the other comment, I don't know, it doesn't doesn't ring true for me. Yeah, that, that's where it all kind of fell apart. Maybe we're, maybe I just don't know how they're interpreting that, and we're not really sure what they're saying. Um, oh, and I have some lovely background noise in our uh, in our podcast here as someone cuts the grass outside my office window. So. Okay, I was going to say either uh, vacuum cleaner or, or, or grass cutting. So, um, so yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, you know, and, and yeah, I mean, in your comment about it's not being published, I mean, well, I guess it is published on a website that you can't copy and paste from, but, uh, yeah, but it's, uh, yeah, you gotta be a little skeptical if it's not, if it's not peer reviewed either. So, yeah, uh, I don't know. It, it's interesting and it's, it's something worth talking about, but I don't know. There's the, you know, it's, we just don't have enough information to really offer a, oh God, they can't copy and paste. Um, <laughs> So, so annoying. I'm, I just, all I want to do is copy Campton BRI because I'm lazy and I want to search for that and I can't even do that. Oh, it's so annoying. Well, I hope that's helping them with their big piracy problem. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's really, really cracking down on people stealing their stuff from their press releases. <laughs> yes. Uh, so let's, you, let, let's talk about, uh, about peer review papers. And I wanted to talk a little bit about a paper that you and our friend Michelle Danilek is, are writing. Oh, yeah, sure, and that you're critiquing for us. So thank you very much. And I, I like that I got um, in on the um, emails about a contour plot, uh, and I'll let you take over on this. But I, I just thought the email exchange that we had yesterday, where you asked Michelle whether something was sufficient, and I answered yes, I think that's sufficient, and you said great, thank you for providing feedback on a paper that you're not writing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> it was awesome. I love uh, I love I love chatting with you guys um, on the on the electronic mail as the kids do. Um, so yeah, so so this is a paper. So you know where to start. So Michelle Michelle had a great idea quite a, some time ago that we ought to publish a paper on listeria growth on cantaloupes because gosh I don't know there's a humongous outbreak. Um, so. 
Unfortunately, our nemesis, um, uh, a scientist who will not be named, uh, published a paper on the exact same topic before we did. Um, but the good news is, is that he, well, <laughs> the good news is after we fixed an order of magnitude typographical error in one of his parameters, and after we corrected the growth rate to instead be natural log of the concentration of organisms to the log base 10 of the number of organisms, his model matches our data exactly. <laughs> well, perfect. Good. So, um, sorry, that's my, uh, a little passive aggressive uh, uh, thing in there. But uh, anyway, so we're going to publish a paper. We're going to mention the two corrections that we made to his model and that it matches our data. But um, uh, Michelle is, is, uh, likes these contour plots. I, I like them. I like them very much uh, uh, too. I think I have to, and I, again, a call back to the last episode and, and John Floro's uh, shilling for IFT. Uh, the very, some of the very first contour plots that I saw were contour plots that John made uh, while he was a graduate student at uh, University of Georgia at the same time I was on peeling of peppers. Uh, so he was working on an engineering project and, and was very enamored of, of data visualization as, as I was. And so some of the very first contour plots I saw came from John. Um, but the, the, the particular contour plot in question is one that shows the relationship between uh, the time uh, in days or in hours and the uh, temperature at which melons are stored at that are based on our model or based on our, our colleague's model because essentially the, the, they're indistinguishable from one another. Um, and it, it basically it's, – it's and then the contours represent the, – the lines represent log increases um, in the number of organisms. And what I'll, what I'll do is I'll, I'll post, this, post this on my Tumblr and then uh, we'll link to it for, for, for show notes. But basically the idea is that you can – if you pick a time and a temperature – combination, you can figure out what the log increase of, um, uh, of listeria would be if the food was stored at that temperature, completely at that temperature for, for that length of time. And so it's very useful in trying to craft risk messages to people. So you could say something like, well, if you measure the temperature of your refrigerator and uh, you know that um, it's four degrees or less, you can store uh, your melon for no more than four days or no more than five days, and you know that the log increase of listeria will be you know less than one log now that last phrase there is just between you and me you probably wouldn 't use that in a consumer, but you could say you know would would represent uh, you know no significant increase in risk or something something to that effect so so that kind of messaging can be um, can or that that kind of uh, Im- those kind of images could be helpful in in messaging when you're when you 're you know, talking to consumers, I think. So anyway, what, do, what did you think? Yeah, no, I love it. I, I think that, um, th- well, truthfully, this might be the first time I've seen a contour plot. Um, and in, yeah, I, I can't, I can't remember seeing anything, um, that I've sort of accessed before on, on growth day that, that, that's presented this way. And I think it's really, um, really awesome because as, as I was in our exchange yesterday and when I was at Michelle sort of pointed out that this allows me to, you know, take what we know a little bit about how people handle, um, that what, what fridge temperatures look like in consumer homes. And there have been, um, three or four pretty decent studies, um, demonstrating, you know, how, how people typically hold food and in, 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 under what conditions and that, those temperatures. And, and it kind of goes sort of up and down, um, from, I would say, 
you know, we're looking at Celsius in between four and, and eight is, is probably realistic. And, um, depending on what part of, uh, North America you live in, um, you, we may see people that are, that are even closer to the eight and this contour plot. And again, it's not something that, um, I appreciate you being able to, um, sort of share this on Tumblr because it, it, it puts some, uh, you know, cause for concern for me around what our messaging is around cantaloupe. Um, so, what we what we currently say right now is, um, you know, keep your you know, keep your cantaloupe in, in your fridge at uh, refrigeration temperatures, and, and the the consumer message is, is at forty degrees. I'd really think, you know, if, say if it's even ten percent or fifteen percent of the population, their fridge may be at uh, forty five degrees Fahrenheit, which really isn't that unrealistic. You're looking at at, you know, five days at 45, close to a three log increase, seven days at 45, like a four log increase. And that becomes, a you know, a, I think a major issue. And, and what I pointed out to, um, to Michelle and, and you and I have talked about this a little bit, this is going on a little bit of unpublished data on some, he said, she said, but, um, some folks that I've talked to at CDC, um, not where I work, the, uh, you know, I, I, even though Dan Benjamin, Benjamin thinks I work there, but, um, I, I had an opportunity to talk to a couple of folks about what they saw in the 2011, um, Listeria outbreak with the, the individuals who were ill and almost all of them, uh, almost all the illnesses came from people that had cut melon in their fridge longer than five days. And this to me just demonstrates, man, that fridge temperature really, really matters. So yes, we want to make sure that people keep, um, keep their stuff below 41, but the number of fridge magnets that are out there, cause we've only got a, you know, a hundred or a couple hundred floating of ours. It's probably not enough to populate the, the country's fridges. Uh, you know, it, it seems to me like we, we need to have a message of, um, 41 degrees. Yes. But, but also toss it after five days or whatever the magic sort of number that we, that we pick here. But I think that it's, it's a, it's both a time and, um, you know, length of time in that fridge matter matters for this one a lot more than, um, other than for other foods. So this, this contour plot was awesome. It kind of blew my mind a little bit. Well, and I've, I thank you for that. Well, good, and and I think it was your it was your it was either your suggestion or Michelle's suggestion to add the degrees Fahrenheit on the other axis, and so of course I went and did that. It's a it's a little bit hard to do, but it was one of those things. It's like yes, I know I should do that, and then and then I went and did it. So, um, and maybe the message is something like if you know if you know that your your fridge is at forty degrees or less, store it for four days. If you don't know the temperature of your fridge, one day. Right. Yes. You know, and th- and that way it's it's like we're not asking people to read the contour plot. We're just we're just asking them to 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 state you know to make one observation and 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 it's, it's a binary thing. Like okay, either I made the observation and it's at this temperature, or I don't. I can't make the observation, or I made the observation and it's higher than that temperature. Then boom, just one day. You know, and then uh, and then I think that that's no. I don't think anybody would argue that that would be that that's probably complicated enough for a consumer and yet does seem I, I, the, the contra plot would support that as being a kind of a, a safe, um, you know, in, in, in air quotes, a safe uh, uh, a recommendation. Yep, absolutely. And I think but this, you know, the, this contour plot visualization helps, helps message developers look at that and say, look, that's, this is where it should be. This is where, you know, the, like, like as, as sort of simple as, as you've just put it in, the, in that observation, this is the, it, we're, let's, let's not, let, he, here's how we made that decision. It's right here. It's right. 
Right. Cool. Yeah, and you know, and this 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 reminds me of another thing that I've been working on again around this issue of temperature and and time controls. And you you alluded to it a little bit. There's a conference for food protection committee that's looking at uh, holding foods out of temperature control. Uh, led by the awesome and amazing Charles Otto. Um, but there's another committee uh, that's working for uh, on the CFP process on emergency uh, food handling during emergencies when the power uh, has been um, is out. And, and that is not led, but it is it is spearheaded by the equally awesome and amazing uh, Jill Hollingsworth from uh, from FMI or retired from FMI. And and so I've been working with with Jill and others on basically something very similar to this, looking at the times and temperatures for listeria uh, growth, not based on the models that Michelle and I have developed, but based on COM-based models and, and actually – Actually, very it's very similar to this contour plot, but but basically coming up with recommendations for how um, uh, food handlers, you know, food handling establishments, restaurants, or most importantly, probably grocery stores would make decisions um, when the power goes out and the temperatures of food starts to rise, and 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 essentially a very similar. I didn't use a contour plot; I used a, just a table with you know log increases and in, and in, in time and temperature. But basically, um, and it wasn't again wasn't our model. It was models from from the the com base, but basically helping them through the sim- a similar process, saying, "Look, you, first of all, you have to decide." What's what's your line between safe and unsafe? And I think everybody is generally comfortable with uh, with one log. But but then how do you how do you make decisions ar- around that? Or how do you come up craft recommendations that have to you know exist in the real world where you can't at least at this point embed contour plots into the regulations and say, well, just simply do a lookup of the the time and the temperature and then and then make a decision. So it, it's very gratifying to see the work that we do in modeling um, being applied by people that have to actually use it to make decisions. So uh, anyway, it's been, it's been, it's been a good week in that respect. Well, cool. Good stuff. And I, I think that this is the, the more and more we can, we can do this. Um, it, it, it helps those who have to interpret that, that regulation or that recommendation as well, uh, because you can automatically point back to this and say, "Look, this is this. You know, draw your lines across here. This is the model that it was built on. It's been validated, and this is why we're uh, making our our recommendations." So, so Don, um, I uh, it's 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 twenty after nine. Um, you and I both have some sort of a tight schedule today. What uh, was there anything else that you want to talk about? Well, speaking of of people having good weeks, <laughs> I think I think we have to talk about our friend and colleague who's maybe not having such a good week. And ten minutes, uh, the ten minutes or so that we have remaining is probably not uh, not enough time to deal with it. But but I think we we both have to uh, just call attention. I mean, I'm sure everybody that listens to the podcast is also aware of this. But but our our good friend and colleague Doug Powell is apparently being fired from Kansas. State University for bad attendance, um, and uh, I mean for for all the full details, we'll link to uh, we'll link to one of the posts on Barf Blog. For, for all the, the full details, you can take uh, take a look uh, at uh, take a look at, at Doug's posts there on Barf Blog. And, and I just just maybe just in, in closing here, unless you have something else, we just have to say that you know we're we're, we're thinking we're thinking about Doug and we're 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 pulling for him, and, and we hope that it all resolves and, and has a, a happy a solution. Because I mean honestly. 
I don't think I, I shared this with Doug when I talked to him, but uh, I think he knows that. I mean, it the the service that he's doing on Barf Blog by collecting all this information, by sharing it with all of us. I mean, it, it's what enables you and I to do this podcast in, in large measure. I mean, not that we couldn't do it on our own, but it makes it way easier for us to do this podcast. It's, it's what enables me to look as good as I do uh, when I'm talking to people in the, for, in the news media uh, about food safety. It's what makes me look like a superstar to my department chair and to my dean because I'm on top of these things. And the only reason I'm on top of these things is I just listen and Doug's on top of these things. So again, I think I uh, just want to say, you know, our, our, uh, Doug is certainly in our, uh, in our thoughts and, and we're, we're pulling for a happy resolution to this this whole nonsense yeah absolutely i mean the only thing that that i want to kind of add and it's no uh no secret on my uh my, my uh tight relationship with uh with dr powell as being my um you know mentor and advisor uh for all my degrees um i think doug um you know, I've talked to him a lot in person over the last, uh, or, you know, not not just email, but we've, we've talked on the phone uh, a bunch in the last uh, 10 days as the situation's unvol- evolved. And I think that with uh, once he got past sort of the initial shock of, oh, man, th- you know, they're, they're going to, you know, not renew my contract because he's, you know, everybody – um, from my understanding, is on a one-year contract at, at Kansas State. Um, they're not going to renew it because I'm not here. Um, he, his, his the place that I think he's in is about preserving his soul at this point. You know that that is, coming back to there. There's a whole bunch of crap that goes on. Um, you know, although this this marriage between the the individual and the institution, um, it sucks that it that it's going sour. It's it's become, I think, more apparent to him why why he does what he does, and it's not for um, you know marks on his dossier or um, you know good good attaboys um, from from his colleagues in his department or, or from administration. It's it's really you know without without putting words into his, his mouth, I think that he does what he does because people get sick, and it matters more than any of the other stuff. And there's lots of people that get sick, and that's you know why why I think you know, why I think I do what I do. And it, it kind of reminds, you know, it, it, for him, it's been a, a reflection time to say, look, this, this obviously isn't the right place for me because they value something else more than, than what I'm, what, what my value system is here, which is um, paying attention and, and helping others um, see where, where things have gone wrong. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it probably even my sense is it's even stronger for Doug than it is for you and me. I, he, I think he does what he does because he can't not do it, right? Yeah. I mean, there's there's no he he can't help himself. He has to. I mean, there's a, a, like a physical there's a physical drive. I think that that he just has to do it. And and maybe it's maybe it's there in me, and maybe it's there in you. But for sure, it's there. It's there in Doug. I mean, you know, this this is this is what he does all the time. I mean, because it's just yeah. I mean, other than spend time with this lovely wife and his wonderful daughter and and his other uh, wonderful daughters as well. Um, but that's that's what he does. I mean, it's it's a it's it's a shame that they're not letting him do it. <laughs> and and I think somewhere else, or he'll he'll continue to do it. Yeah. Um, with, under different parameters or, or whatever it is, but I think you're, you're exactly right. It's 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 what he does, and and writing about the situation in the manner that he's written about it. You know, we we'll, we'll link to the the original post that he um, 
where, where sort of he announced that um, that his contract isn't being renewed, and then he's subsequently written four letters, I think, to um, who he's referring to as Dear Doctor Provost. Right. Um, that that's also exactly what he does. I mean, to yep. this manner, it would be this is all this is all open. I'm going to tell you how I feel, and I'm going to tell you how I feel because that's that's who I am, and that's where this all fits in um, to the to the bigger um, to the bigger picture. But but I think uh, you know it, it, it crystallizes it in my mind that that you know his he's not going to sort of ever do what someone tells him he should do because they're telling him he's going to do what feels right to him. And that's, that's where, that's where he is. And I, and I, I mean, I, I think that that's the, I, I, I strive to be able to do that. Um, I, I think he's, uh, um, he, he always can walk away from a situation saying that even though he may have been wrong or whatever in, in someone else's mind, he did what he felt was right. So yeah, yeah, that's good. That's, I mean, that, that's that's kind of a the type of quality that that I look for in a friend and a colleague and and someone um, to you, you know, to look up to as as someone who generates a, a, a lot of data and 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 is really important I think to the food industry so and he'll continue to be yeah this the question is not if he'll continue to do what he does it's just where he'll do it and under under what uh, under what banner exactly. I did. I did. I have to share. I did. I'm not sure if I copied you. I did share a couple of people that a couple of other universities where he could go. And I named a couple of names. He said, yeah, those two guys have even bigger egos than I do. I don't think it would work out. So <laughs> I don't know. I, th- I think he needs to work for somebody that has an equally big ego and, and, and uh, maybe a, and a little bit thicker skin. Uh, but but that's just my opinion. <laughs> well, well, good. Um, yeah. So I know. I don't know if he listens or not. I know that he, he, he listened to the first one and he told us that we laughed too much. I don't think well, he listens anymore. No, I think he might listen to He might really listen to a couple, like the start of all of them. Cause you, <laughs> I'm sure we just, but you know, by the time after dark, he, he's bailed. Yeah. But, uh, he said, um, one, you know, one conversation we had last week, um, after this all went down, we were talking about the podcast and he said that you and you and he had, had spoken. He said, you know, you guys, you guys like doing that podcast thing. And I said, yeah, it's, it's good. It's, it's fun. It serves a, a really good purpose. Just like with the, with, you know, with barf, with writing blog posts where it kind of helps, you know, me figure out what to say and what to think and what to talk about things. Cause we get to hash it out and he goes, yeah, cause I stayed away from it for a while, but maybe you guys should have me on. <laughs> all right. All right. We'll do it. We'll figure it out, but, but like we talked about in in the last uh, episode, sometimes we have to we'll have to figure out how to make it work within his um, technology paradigm. Uh, like, <laughs> you may have to, yeah, you may just send us a video, and we'll talk to him later. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, well, it's like to, yeah, sorry, did, we were going to have a little bit of a derail here before we go into After Dark. Apparently, so um, do you watch Doctor Who? I don't. I, um, it's scared when I was a kid. I mean, there's, there's like an older version, right. That was on in the eighties that my dad really liked it. And I remember him watching on PBS and there was the combination of like dark video recording and British accents and, and guys getting into phone booths and and stuff all kind of creeped me out and turned me off of it when I was about six. Uh, okay, yeah. So I I watched the Tom Baker Doctor Who, you know, back probably that same uh, that same era, or maybe maybe a little bit uh, after that after that era. But um, uh, there's a wonderful thing in the new incarnation of Doctor Who where he do- the Doctor basically makes a videotape 
that is a conversation with somebody, but it's a videotape, right? So he knows what that person is going to say. Um, and, and it's just, it's quite amazing. So I'm thinking that's what we could do with Doug. Like he could, he could basically record his, his half of the conversation. And then we would just fill in the spaces in between to match with what he said on the videotape. So that, that might work. Dude, I, I love it. Okay. All right. All right. Well, hey, this has been awesome uh, again, um, and uh, I know you've got you got a busy day, busy week. I also earn, I'm on the same thing, so it's probably done. Sign off. Um, that was Food Safety Talk, episode 38. All right. Take care, Ben. Okay. I w- I'm trying to like come up with, you know, the thing that we say at the end of it, but I never mm. know. Yeah. Well, we should probably like write something down. <laughs> it'll evolve. It'll takes, it'll, it'll happen. Cool. Good. There's our first, uh, bre- look at this. We knocked out a podcast by nine 30 in the morning. It's wild on a Monday, a Monday. Damn. Okay. So audio file is edited uh, for, for the last episode. Yep. So I'm I, I'm going to spend uh, some time going through your notes and get, I should get it up in the next um, you know hour or so. Yeah. The only the only problem is if there is something about the difference between the kind of account that I have and the kind of account that you have that you just physically are not allowed to do it. So if if that's the case, like if there's something about your Squarespace account that won't allow you to do it, just just throw the MP3 in um, the Dropbox and and then just ping me and I'll do it. Cool. Okay, I will do that. But but yeah, but I, I tried to make it fairly straightforward when I wrote the direction. So hopefully, uh, it, it still it looks straightforward to you as well. Excellent. I will take care of it shortly. Okay, and then so let's see. That means that I am doing the audio for thirty eight, and yeah. you you are doing the show notes. Yes, sir. Um, and by doing, of course, we mean. <laughs> making minor corrections to what Andreas comes up with. Cutting and pasting. Yeah. <laughs> this is file. And yes. Uh, oh, we didn't talk about your uh, toilet paper dispenser. No, no. And that's, uh, yeah, that's, uh, yeah. Ugh. Sorry, Andreas. Um, we, 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 anyway, so on, we'll, we'll, we'll link to it. But Andreas uh, uh, says a, a follow-up, especially for Don, for the next time he heads out into the woods with the scouts. And it's a, uh, as, as Gizmodo calls it, a brilliant to- toilet paper dispenser to leave crapping campers clean and hassle-free. It does look rather clever.
does. It does. I, um, I, you know, my, my aversion to camping is kind of that I would not use this just because I wouldn't be outside. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, as much as I enjoyed the time camping with the boy Scouts, I don't do too much of that anymore. And even in the best of times, I really do not like, like crapping in the woods. Yeah. Not fun at all. There's nowhere to put your iPhone. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's the big problem. <laughs> is it's just it, it, yeah it's just it's awkward. if i if i had an iphone iphone stand for pooping it would be fine for the yeah camping iphone stand i'm sure someone will come up with that are you uh are you excited about the i-ring and the uh the itv and i-ring combination that's been rumored from last week or announced oh i i am out of the loop i've only heard about this watch that apple is apparently not making <laughs> well apparently they're making a tv and it involves it includes a ring to control um the screen menus one ring to rule them all <laughs> them all so yeah i can't wait to lose the ring that i have <laughs> like like the apple tv remote lost on a uh, somewhat basis oh. now because it's the thinnest damn thing out there and it's the one that that's the most attractive to my children oh it's beautiful it's a beautiful it's a, it's an example of something that's an absolutely beautiful piece of hardware that apple made as small and as beautiful as they could and what i want to do is x-ray the damn thing so i can figure out where in the aluminum i can drill <laughs> to to put it on a, a giant key ring, you know, with like a like like the like the uh, the keys that you get uh, to at, at a at a a, a public uh, a gas station or a, a public uh, facility where people are always stealing the keys, so you can just put a giant piece of wood <laughs> attached to it, so you don't lose it. So yeah, the good the good news is about the the Apple TV remote is the easiest thing is just to download the remote app to your phone, and you always can find your phone, right? Oh, always, yes. So, have you have you checked that out? The remote app? No. Oh, you sh- you should totally totally get to get the get the remote app for your phone. It, it's it's as good or better than the beautiful little remote. Sorry, I do have the remote app. I don't use it so much oh. for Apple. I use it for to control my iTunes more oh, than every. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um. But uh, yeah, there's. I don't know why I haven't used it for Apple TV. I knew that I could, but I've just never done that. I will check it out. It works pretty well. Cool. FST thirty nine. Wow! In a row, <laughs> like a bunch of times on thirty seven. <laughs> and only Kevin Smith fans would have gotten it. Um. Uh, uh, okay. Cool. I I do have to run. Okay. But I think that's so. This might be a very short after dark. Oh well, well, we're done though, right? I mean, we we talked about toilet paper, we talked about the uh, remote, um, uh, and we scheduled a, the show. So we hit our agenda items. We're good. Hey, have a have a good time. I'll, uh, I'll it looks like I'll talk to you on Friday for writing buddies. Yes, indeed. Talk to you soon, Ben. Sounds good. Talk to you later, Don. Take care. Bye. Bye.